0: Well, I want to begin um, this morning with a couple of really important truths that I think frame this conversation we're in, invitation to identity. The first of those is this, that identity, and you've heard us talk about this if you've been at Bethany before, really forms the center, the very center of our lives. Um, you've probably heard me share this Henry Nouwen quote once in, once in a while, that um, being the beloved expresses the core of our existence, Right? Identity as belovedness, if you just want to put it that way, is at the very heart of who we are. We see this in the baptism of Jesus when he goes down into the waters before he preaches a sermon, prays a prayer, heals anyone. He goes down, baptized, comes up, and what does God say? You are my beloved son, and you, I am well pleased. So we're beloved. That's the core of who we are. The second truth, I think, helps frame this conversation in a similar way, and it's this, that while nothing is more foundational than our belovedness, Understanding our belovedness, understanding our identity, is one of the most difficult journeys that we'll ever take. Marilyn Robinson uh, once said it like this that there's nothing more unfathomable than ourselves, individually or collectively, at any given moment and from the earliest beginning of human time. Nothing more unfathomable than ourselves. And it's true, isn't it, that though being beloved expresses the core of who we are, it's irreducibly simple it's also remarkably complex, that it's hard to make sense of that at many times in many seasons and given the many circumstances we each face. It's challenging to come into a deep and living understanding with who we are, right? And to live out of that understanding on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis. I think the movie Zoolander, if you remember that movie, and this dates me, I know, but hang with me, I think perfectly illustrates this, where Derek Zoolander, the, the movie's protagonist... He's in this existential crisis. He storms out of a building into a parking lot. His ego's been deflated. You remember this probably by a series of events. We've all been there, Have our ego's deflated, right? And he's staring down at the ground at this puddle, and it reflects his image perfectly back to him, and he says in this moment, it's it's a Ben Stiller movie, so of course, who am I? And his reflection speaks back to him and says, I don't know. And then Zoolander says, well, I guess I have a lot of things to figure out or to ponder. And we have a lot of things to ponder, don't we, when it comes to identity? A lot of things for us to sort of wrestle with. It's complicated, um, you know, especially in this society that's barraging us with negative messages all the time that you are your worst day, that you're your biggest mistake, that you're not enough, that you'll never be enough. I mean, you could go on and on with this litany of that we are not beloved. You know, that's pie in the sky by and by it the society we're in, if the culture does a good job on us by the time we, we get into this time of adulthood that many of us are in, we learn to deeply despise ourselves. Even if that's just subconsciously, we learn to hate ourselves. We have this inner hostility working on us at times. And so then the question is um, that we want to wrestle with today is how do we come into direct contact with this unfathomable truth of our identity that we're given by God? How do we learn to live as the beloved when that identity is so hard to grasp, you know, and believe and, and really live out of, this unquestionably true thing? How do we go on that journey? And so, as you might suspect, this text that I've presented to you, Acts 1, uniquely speaks to this question. It's a fascinating story because what we find is these disciples have experienced the shock and horror of the, resur- or the crucifixion, Right? Um, we've just come out of that time ourselves in the, in the church calendar, and then they've experienced the astonishment and bewilderment of the resurrection. We've also just kind of celebrated that with Easter Sunday. So now they're gathered in Jerusalem, and it's in that gathering they're trying to make sense of it all. They're trying to figure out who they are. If you think of it this way, this group of individuals, maybe families, are shaken. There's an incredible degree of a degree of disruption in their lives. If you think of it this way, their expectations of who they are, who God is, who the, what the world should look like have not been met. You know, and we, spoke about this, we spoke about this last week as Silas and I taught on Luke 24 that the disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and they, had, they said on that walk as they met Jesus, we had hoped that he, Jesus, would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped in the past tense. Their hopes, I mean, they're, they've lost hope that anything good is gonna come out of this season of their lives. So what do you do when everything you thought about God, about yourself, about the world in which you live has been utterly shaken, turned upside down, inside out? When you've lost hope, right? What do you do? When the things you've been taught about God, you know, you've been walking with God much of your life and suddenly you're like, wow, I don't know if I, I believe much of that anymore. What do you do? If you find yourself today, things you've been taught about God are not panning out the way you imagined or expected? How do you remake your identity? How do you rebuild it? How do you make sense of your world if you find yourself in a world like that? And I think many of us can resonate with this kind of ferment, if you will, uh, as we think about life, quote-unquote, after COVID, right? That's not a thing, by the way. Life, a life of faith, as we're parenting our children, as we're mothering, all the things we're talking about in this setting, many of us are not where we thought we'd be right now. You know, if you, if you could rewind just a decade, you're not, you're not really who you are or where you are. Um, you're not filled with a lot of hope, maybe. Maybe you are, and I'm not resonating with you, so I apologize, but you're not filled with a lot of hope about next year, about this next 10 years. Um, so how do you remake your identity when that's you? Um, and this text, like I said, it speaks to this question in a profound, unique way. It has uh, a few invitations in it to kind of, like I said, we're in the invitation series. Invitation to Identity. This text, I think, extends these corresponding invitations back to identity toward the sort of rebuilding and remaking of us as beloved people of God. Okay? And those invitations, you didn't get a bulletin today. We apologize. Our admin has been out sick this week, so we didn't get one. Those invitations, go ahead and throw those up, Maj. I think, maybe I don't have those. No, don't do that yet. I didn't put that slide together. Apologize. Our our simple, uh, the invitation to wait, invitation to witness, invitation to wonder, okay? So the invitation to wait, which is verses four and five of Acts 1, invitation to witness, verses six to eight, and then invitation to wonder, and I'll walk us through those. So first, the invitation to wait, okay? This is verse four. Go ahead and throw that up now, Maj. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. So there's the invitation to wait, right? The Greek word for wait is the word perimeno, which means to wait. There you go. Thanks for getting that one. I know I threw a terrible joke out last week, and I'm not very good at humor, but that's just my slightly cheeky way of saying there's no ambiguity about this first invitation. There's no nuance to it. Jesus is simply saying, "Wait, Like, hang out. Stand by, be patient." And if there's something I've been taught about saying, "Be patient is, don't say be patient." I preached a sermon on patience sometime back, and I've never gotten so many emails from one sermon than that sermon. I'll tell you, I'm not kidding. So if you know the timeline of this story, that's roughly a 40-day period. He's not saying just wait till tomorrow. You know, it's a 40-day period that Jesus is inviting the wait in uh, between Passover and Pentecost, okay? And which is a long season of waiting that, you know, we just finished Lent between Ash Wednesday and Easter. And if you ever have given up something for Lent, whether that's chocolate or mint chocolate chip ice cream or coffee or whatever it is, not speaking narratively, you know that's really hard to do, right? Right? That This window of time within the season of Lent, is just, it's a really difficult thing to kind of go through a season of preparation. And if you've ever fasted, it's really hard to do that. And so that's similar here. The season of Eastertide is what we're in. This is why we've kept this cloth on the cross. We're in the church season of Eastertide between Passover and Pentecost. That's the same season that they're in. And this is just a way of saying this is a long season of waiting that Jesus is inviting them into. A season during which we can imagine if we just put ourselves in their shoes uh, presents a, an incredible amount of unease and, and dissonance for them. Like, who are we? You're sitting in this room, matching yourselves in church on Sunday. You know, God's not going to speak. We're not going to have a sermon. There's going to be no prayer. I mean, we just, there, I'm sure there was prayers and sermons at the time, but who are we? Like, what are we doing here? Why am I here right now? And by the way, uh, what's my life amounting to right now? Like, why am I even going to church? Because it's not making a difference. Like, why are we sitting around waiting? Let's do something. Let's get on the streets, you know? All these kinds of questions. And and whether we're a first century or 21st century follower of God, what I'm trying to say here is we just don't like to wait. It's not, you know... um, it's not something we enjoy doing. My grandmother used to say, waiting is a virtue that few men possess, right? It's something that we aren't very good at. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, another person who I, I value, once said it like this a, a while back. He said, unfortunately, patience is not held high, in high regard in American society. We're in a hurry. We're addicted to shortcuts. We love fast cards. We love fast food. One of the most appreciated features of our vaunted technology is how fast we can get things done, Right? It's true, he says, we don't like to wait. Whether that's waiting in traffic or waiting in line or waiting on a person to show up. You know, you have a meeting and they're late. You're just waiting. We hate waiting. Or maybe waiting on God to do something. You've been praying. You've been faithful. You've been serving. You've been giving. And God's, you're just not sure if God's even doing anything. You hate waiting. As Peterson says, it's, uh, you know, the consequence of this, though, this cultural impatience that we have is that the faster we move, and this is where it ties to identity, the less we become. The faster we move, the less we become. Our speed, he says, diminishes us, actually. It doesn't increase us. And we've all experienced this in our lives, when you're moving too fast through the day, and you miss an opportunity, you miss one of your kids, uh, you miss that. uh, Silas and I were driving down the freeway this week, uh, back from a meeting, and there's, you know, obviously I couldn't look out my window to the east if I were driving. at 70 miles an hour, so maybe it's a poor illustration. But I'm missing 70 miles an hour down the freeway, not faster. Missing all these beautiful mountains, you know. And, and, and how, how is that a metaphor for our life? Our speed diminishes us. Our ability to really pay attention. And how this ties to identity is there's really no shortcuts to becoming who we are. You can't speed that up. You can't look it up on the internet You know, you can't just take a personality test and suddenly I know who I am as much as I love those personality tests. It's only something we discover as we wait, right? The formation of identity, the remaking of identity, the rediscovery of that takes time, is what I'm trying to say. I think one of the biblical images that best speaks to this is the image of uh, a tree and its roots. You have this imagery throughout the scriptures. So the story of God begins in the garden, centers around a tree, Ends in a garden city, centers around a tree. And in the midst of that, for example, Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of God, who meditates on God's law day and night. And then verse 3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in every season, and whose leaf does not wither. And it's this image of plantedness or rootedness uh, that's key to understanding what the Bible's inviting us to, it, It's especially as it relates to our identity, which is to say that trees must, must be planted, and not just planted, but rooted, if you get this metaphor, in order to thrive and grow. You can't just put a tree in the ground and then suddenly have it grow. It has to grow roots, right? Uh, Ephesians speaks about this in chapter 3, where it says that uh, we discover, as a result of having strong roots in love, we discover that we have power to grasp God's love. The, the width and the length and the height and the depth of that love because of having strong roots in that love. Are you with me? Roots are the basis by which the tree thrives. Roots are the basis by which we s- discover and develop a healthy identity. Um, roots take time. They take time. And, and, and by the way, that is often a slow and unremarkable process. Roots are not something that you get to observe Growing beneath the ground, if that tree's gonna grow, you have to let the tree grow. And you know, we bought a tree some time ago, and some of you remember this tree. We did a sermon response right here in this room, I think. Maybe it was back in the high school, 2016 or 17. Some of you are here for that. Um, and I don't even remember what the sermon was about. <laughs> there, that's, you'll remember this sermon tomorrow, maybe, but it, it was a dogwood tree right here. Elizabeth and I purchased it over Swanson's Nursery over in Ballard, and uh, and I remember we invited you all up if you were here, and some a lot of you weren't, but to respond and and attach ribbons to the tree, and those ribbons were sort of prayers and next steps and hopes, and it was beautiful. And then we took it home and planted the tree in our yard. And part of why we did that was we didn't just want to throw it. We didn't feel good about throwing the tree away. You know, like, uh, not that we just throw your stuff away after you do responses. But like, I was like, well, we need to do something with this tree. And also, and this is more important, Elizabeth and I planted a dogwood tree on our wedding day. It was about 15 years earlier. It'll be 20 years this year up in Anacortis, So we were married outside at um, her parents' house in Anacortis in this big yard. And they have a big oak tree. And, and um, as a way of sort of marking that day and, and a gift to our parents, uh, that space, we planted a dogwood. And, uh, and there's sort of this connection to trees for us, right? That's not why I'm at Bethany. I know our logo is a tree, and that's not why I came. But um, we love dogwoods. So we planted this tree back to Bethany now um, and put this tree in our in front of our yard here. I remember taking it out of the container that it came in. You know, there's a root ball. You break that up. You dig the hole you hope you dig it deep enough. You put the, you know, have any of you planted a tree before? Kind of know the. I'm not very good at touching things like that grow because they might die. And so my wife's the gardener our family. You hope the soil's fertile enough. You hope you're watered enough. You do all the things you know to do. And so I, we did this. So this tree, and I remember this dog went our yard and just feeling after the first months, like, anxious. And, like, nervous that this thing this is going to die. We put it in the wrong spot. We didn't do it the right way. Oh, gosh, this was the tree that was the sermon response. Oh, my Lord, what's going to happen? I'd wiggle it a little bit and it looked like the ground was kind of moving and it didn't appear to be growing. And I'd often ask myself, has it grown? Like, is it growing? Is it, is it thriving? Year after year, I'm just thinking it's going to die. This is the year. It's going to die. And then Bethany Northeast is going to die. And it's going to be because of me, you know. And, and so I'm just, you know, you know, anything. There's nothing to shake a stick at this tree. So fast forward to 2022. I took a picture of it this week. uh, There's that tree. So it's not, I mean, it took, I was down below it, so it looks bigger. But uh, it's not huge. It's alive. If you come by our house, you can see it. It's flowering. Um, In certain seasons, it has clusters of these little bright red kusa, if you know dogwoods that cover it. If you smell it, it's got this fragrance, earthy smell to it. It's alive. Um. And it's green right now and it's beautiful and um, it's maybe not as beautiful as some other dogwood trees, but that's okay. It's alive, which is a reminder that growth, most growth, is slow, subtle, and unremarkable. You know, we're four, five, six years on now and, and that growth didn't happen overnight it, and it's happened mostly underground, if that makes sense. So understanding and grasping the power of God's love takes time. Realizing our belovedness takes time. And I think what I'm trying to say and how this connects with this story is that waiting does not diminish us. We often think that waiting around for a person or in line or for God, that's diminishing me. I want to have agency and power over this situation. And so waiting does not diminish us, whether that's waiting during Eastertide, waiting during pandemic time, or waiting during stinking ordinary time when nothing's happening, right? Right? Waiting doesn't diminish us. It fills us. It fills us out, to use this metaphor of the tree. It causes us to grow. It it gives us time to root for who we are in Christ to develop and bloom. And and it's a gift. Waiting is a gift. That's what I think I'm saying here. And Jesus is saying, wait. Because this is a gift for you right now in this season while I'm teaching you and preparing you for your future is to be present to the daily work of God. Okay, so that's, that's the weight and, and how that ties to our identity. Here's the witness, and this is in verses 6 to 8, where uh, Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the periods the Father set by his authority, but you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so I sort of joked about that Greek word for weight and I uh, shared earlier. Uh, no joke here. The word for witness, the Greek word for witness, is actually important. So pay attention here. It's the word martyrea, where we get our English word martyr. Martyrea is to witness. And, and that word has a variety of meanings. It can have a legal meaning. We often think of it this way for somebody who's in the courtroom and bearing witness. Something you've seen, something you've heard, something you've experienced. So there's this verbal aspect to witness, Okay also represents something we do, especially in evangelical settings like Bethany. Uh, we might think of times when you've been in a church or a church setting where you've been invited to go witness, you know, you have a tract or you're on a mission trip and uh, you've gone to witness about uh, your faith to other people. You shared the story of God at work in your life, right? And I don't need to take a show of hands, but many of us haven't experienced that before. So there's a, a, th- a thing we do there. But here's the thing. What this word martyria is sort of the etymological... Uh, resource or that this is. What it reminds us of is that this connection uh, within waiting to suffering and persecution is that uh, witness is not something we do or something we say, but it's who we are. You are my witness or my witnesses. Witness is who we are, okay? Which I think speaks to this invitation to identity in a really profound way. A lot of us, you know, we derive our identities through external criteria. We Witness can look that way, right? You go and witness, um, you bear witness, what we say, what we do, how we share the story of God, if you take it out of the story of God, how we present ourselves in a room, how we're seen, how we're understood, you know, that's really important to us. But the essential meaning of witness, as it gets into this this word I'm trying to describe to you, it, it's, it's, it's Jesus saying, you are the witness, you are my witness. It's It's for you to become a different kind of people than you were before your relationship started with me. Those who, because of their experience of Jesus, their relationship to Jesus, specifically his death and his resurrection, his way of ministering to people on the margins, because of your relationship to Jesus, that shapes who you are and how you live. Paul says this in Philippians 2. He prays this prayer. Might you think of yourselves... The way Jesus thought of himself. Might you have the identity of Christ? Okay, this is what it means to be the witness. Who, though he had equal status with God, didn't think much of himself that he had to cling on to that. Indeed, when the time came, he set it aside. He set aside all his privilege, his status as God, took on the status of a servant. He became human. And I love this line. This is from the message. Having become human, he stayed human. Having become human, he stayed human. I just love that. And I think there's a temptation in us, even though all of us have always been human, to not stay human. As we present in a room, we, we want to look bigger than we actually are. We want to look better than we actually are. We want to, even as we present the story of God to others, we want it to be more exciting than it actually is Sometimes. You know, we don't want to talk about the waiting for God. We want to talk about the Pentecost, the story of God and fire and tongues and all the things, right? The glory of God. But Jesus, having become human, stayed human. Just lived inside that deep, mundane humanity. And I love how that speaks to the idea of what it means to be Christ's witness, his martyria. Like, think of this. It's interesting to me that it says here in Acts 1 that in his resurrected body, Jesus is resurrected at this moment, he presented himself to his disciples. Did you catch that? Over a period of 40 days, he presented himself to his disciples. Think of this. They're eating. Literally at this moment, they're having a meal together, and he's risen from the dead. What's that about? Why does Jesus need to eat? He's, he's undead. <laughs> he doesn't need food. You and I need it. Others you get hangry and all that, but... Jesus doesn't need it. So in many different ways and over this period of 40 days, in face-to-face meetings, they met, they ate meals, they prayed, they talked, they worked out the meaning of salvation together. And it's in this presentation of himself, staying human. Are you with me? Staying human. This is so key for us to understand what it means to be the witness of God. Uh, The author and theologian William James Dennings has this really insightful commentary on the book of Acts. And he writes about this idea of presentation. So I just want to quote him. He says that God, who overcomes suffering and death, presents God's self. The word here is per, peritis, peristemi, to be viewed, to be touched, and even handed over, handled over many days. Think of the disciples handling him. This giving of himself continues what began with Mary's touch of her child through the crowds pressing into grasp and hold a grasp of his healing body, to the brutal hands of the the Roman military committed to practices of torture. He he presented himself. I don't, you don't take my life, I lay it down willingly, Jesus said. I present myself to you. Um, And to this moment now, in this room, when the disciples, confused and fearful and unclear of their future, needed to hear the words of Jesus, here and now, touch me. Here and now, in my broken and risen body. Jesus Uh, Jennings says, always presents himself to be touched. And the disciples are being introduced to this new and revolutionary way of touch. And in this way, he goes on to say, faith in Jesus refuses to be rooted in phantasm. I love that. Whether they believe it or not, Jesus is alive, present, to be touched, in league with all the senses. The resurrection of Jesus is probably closer to the erotic than the evidentiary, if you think of it that way the way in which we touch one another, the way in which we're loved by others as we're touched. You, know, you think of your children, your spouse, those that you love. You think of Mother's Day and the embrace you might extend to a mother in your life. That is closer to the resurrection and to what it means to present yourself and to be a witness than perhaps anything else, which is just a longer way of saying what Jenny says more plainly elsewhere, that witness is love bound in bodies. Witness is love bound in bodies. There's a disembodied way of communicating love in our culture. I was over at Target yesterday with Lauren in the Mother's Day card aisle, and it's so disembodied. It is so canned and cheesy at times. And I joked with my wife about this. There was this one card that said, you know... um, even the best mothers swear sometimes, and then on the inside it said, Happy damn Mother's Day. And my wife doesn't swear, so my daughter's like, well, don't give that to her. But I thought, I thought that was funny because it's like there's an embodiment there, at least, of a sort of a, a person. You can imagine your mom swearing. Maybe you swore once or twice as a mom, and you're like, man, thank you for the permission to drop whatever bomb you want on your family and not have to ask forgiveness for it. And so there's a sense in which how we are with others shapes who we are with others. Does this make sense? As we practice things like confession and forgiveness. As we lament the ways in which the world around us is so deeply broken. As we listen to one another's stories, especially, back to Jesus, the stories of the forgotten and the lonely and the marginalized. Jesus was a quintessential listener. And not just to, you know, the religious, but to the irreligious at times. He would listen to their stories, try and understand where they were coming from. Witness is painful and slow. It's love-bound in bodies. And God is calling us as His witness, you know, to enter into these new places as new people and to join ourselves to those in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Which is just a way of saying, Let's stand in a posture of vulnerability in all the places we go, not just in your own home, Jerusalem, not just in your neighborhood, Judea, not just you know across town Samaria, but anywhere you might be called, be the witness. Be loved, bound in a body. Embrace those who are suffering in those spaces. And then, as you do so, discover. Discover. You will discover who you are. So that's the witness. That's the invitation to witness. I'll do the wonder one more quickly on this one. And this is in verses 9 to 11. I won't read this one, but this is a remarkable scene. These disciples, and this is where a lot of people preach this text on the ascension of Jesus. I'm not going to preach about the ascension. But... Uh, these disciples have been with Jesus. There's about 120, they think, gathered with Jesus those 40 days, men and women. Um, they're standing now in awe of Jesus as he's ascending up into heaven. And as he ascends, he's lifted in this cloud, which is a significant metaphor in the Bible. So I'm not going to get into it, but the disciples are watching. Like I said, they're in awe. And Luke presents us these two men in white robes, standing by the disciples, a pair of what seem like angels. If I mean, I'm not... I'm not sure the Greek word is there, but I think it's an angel. I'm just guessing. And they ironically bring the disciples back to earth. You know, you think of angels coming from the sky and, like, surrounding Jesus, and they're right there on the ground saying, hey, 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 to paraphrase, don't look there for Jesus. Don't look up in the clouds for Jesus. Look right here on the ground where you are in this moment. Which is another way to just perhaps say, be more present in the moment you're actually in, and there and only there Are you going to discover not only who God is, but who you are? And I know this is basic, but I want to say it anyway, uh, that we cannot be somewhere else with someone else if we want to be, if we understand who we are. We have to be here and now. That's the incarnation in a nutshell. Here and now is who God is calling us to be. You know, I've I've told some of you, not everybody here, that our family is preparing for a trip to Ireland this summer. We're going to go over the month of August, so I'll be gone um, and, and if you want to know why we're going to Ireland, I there's not a long story to it. I just, we picked Ireland, like Ireland. So we're going to Ireland. We've been reading books, watching films and listening to music and all kinds of things and stories and trying to even working on the accent a little bit. I'm not going to try it out on you today. <laughs> I'm going to save that one for another day still working on it. Um, But one of the people we like to kind of watch is Rick Steves up in Evans. I mean, some of you have traveled in Europe and Rick Steves and you know he's a little quirky, but, you know, he's good. So he has a lot of travel uh, books and, and some films on Ireland that we watched. And in one of those, he has this really pithy and profound insight. And he says this, he's talking to some people in Ireland, his wife's from Ireland, and he says the people of Ireland are close to the land. And, he, and, he, and he, this insight, he says, he is illustrated by days. He's out in Ireland, and he visits this town. And he comes across this local. He's out for a little hike. You can kind of imagine, you know, there's sheep and stuff. Comes across this guy, and he asks the guy, were you born here? And then the guy says, well, no, I was born about six miles down the road. Yeah, and then, then Steve's kind of rolls to them and says, well, okay, so have you lived here all your life? And the Irish guy says, well, not yet. Don't you love that? I mean, it speaks to this notion of presence. The guy is so present that he can say, no, I'm, I'm not, I haven't lived here my whole life because I haven't lived my whole life. I lived to this moment. This moment is as long as I've lived. And some of us want to live to not just the next moment, but we're trying to see how far we can get in life, you know, by saving up enough money and, and kind of staying as healthy as we can and kind of doing all the right things so that we might extend that life beyond who knows how long. And, and we're not able to be as present in the very moment we're in, and we lose out on kind of who God is, what God's saying, who we are, right? So there's an invitation to presence here, that when we are most present in the moment we're in, in that moment, they're not somewhere else, like I said, not with someone else, not someone else, not with somebody else, here and now, that's when we most profoundly meet God, and begin to understand who we are. Cole Arthur Riley, um, she's the founder creator of the Instagram account Black Liturgies, which I came across over 2020 during this, uh, this racial Reckoning that we've been in. And she has a new book out that she published this year called This Here Flesh. And she describes this, this notion of presence. She uses the word wonder. I kind of want to finish with this. I think it speaks to this the notion of identity. Um, She says, when I speak of wonder, and think of this in terms of Acts 1 and the the disciples kind of drawn up into the clouds and the invitation to be back on the ground, okay? When I speak of wonder, I mean the practice of beholding the beautiful. You can think of Jesus going up into the clouds as a very beautiful thing, right? Awe and wonder there. Beholding the majestic, the snow-capped Himalaya, the sun setting on the sea, but also the perfect mundane, that soap bubbly reflection on your kitchen, the oxidized underbelly of that stainless steel pan. More than the grand beauties of our lives, wonders about having the presence to pay attention to the commonplace, which includes, she says, the capacity to be in awe of humanity. You know, even, even your own humanity. Indeed, learning to marvel at your brokenness and your ability to heal. Have you ever marveled at your ability to heal? You to cut, you have a scab, and then you heal. It just happens, right? Um... Josh was asking me today about my shoulder. I busted it up pretty bad. I was talking to John about his knee. I mean, there are doctors involved there, but then your body's doing the work, right? Your ability to heal. You can marvel at that. You can be in awe uh, of the presence of a neighbor if you'll just pay attention to the person for a moment. Just as much, she says, or perhaps more so than a mountaintop. You know, I talked about the mountains as I was driving by. And if I pay attention to some of you, you know, I'm with Silas in that moment, I can be just as much, I should be, just as much in awe of that other person as I am of that mountain. This is about paying attention to what God's doing in any particular moment of any particular day in any particular place. That's what wonder is all about. That's what it means to be right on the ground in the moment you are. And so as we respond today, I guess what I want to do um, as, we, as I invite you back into this, this practice of wonder and I'll invite you back up, Austin, wherever you are there. Um, and of rooting and grounding ourselves to use that language from Ephesians again that I mentioned earlier. Um, I want to relate this to our celebration of AAPI Heritage Month. We talked about this last week. Silas shared about this is May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Really important month to, to months to our community as well as to our wider community in Seattle. And so as part of our celebration of that, we've curated a sort of pilgrimage, API pilgrimage that we're inviting you to take part of, to part in later this month. Go ahead and throw that slide up, Maj, because I want people to see the pilgrimage slide. There you go. This has the information about what we're doing. It's on May 20th and 21st, so there's a couple weekends away. Um, you're going to be invited to visit several important sites in the International District of Seattle, so Wing Luke Museum, Wajamaya Food Hall, and the Nihon Machi Alley. And so you'll get, you can get more information by going to, back up one, to our uh, website there. And you can find that in our e-news. I'm sorry we don't have a bulletin for you today. Um, we're going to share about each of these sites over the next few weeks before we go on this pilgrimage. So you kind of have a context for where you're going. So today I just wanted to share a bit about Wing Luke. This is the Wing Luke Museum. It's down in the International District. Um, Wing Luke, and is the first Smithsonian-affiliated museum in the Pacific Northwest. And is named after Wing Luke. He's a Chinese-American lawyer and politician. The first Asian-American elected to political office in Washington State. Also the first person of color elected to the Seattle City Council in 1962. So he has a significant impact on our community for a number of reasons. Um, one of those is he, you know, he broke through those barriers, but also he played a, a key role in advocating for the open housing ordinance, Or the the passage of the open housing ordinance, which banned racial discrimination in the rental and the sale of, of property in Wash in Seattle, um, that was repealed, sadly, a year later. But it had an impact on the fabric of our city when it comes to the elimination of redlining and the integration of our city across race and ethnic lines. Um, and that's important for us as a church to understand because our city had been segregated and still lives in the wake of some of that segregation the history of segregation. Um, And so our city, like many others, is still very imperfect. We talked about this book we read last year called Race in Place by David Leong. um, And that tells more of the story. But Wing Luke, without Wing Luke, we wouldn't be here today as a city and as a community. We would would be a church of just one race, one ethnicity, because we couldn't be integrated the way we are. So he has a a powerful influence on our city. He fought for the improvement and development of Seattle's Chinatown, um, preservation of Pike Place Market, Square as well as the Wawona which is a schooner that sailed out of Seattle for many years. So there's a massive figure in our city that we often don't recognize as a massive figure. So as you think about this um, idea of presence and wonder, I want to tie this together I think of those angels who came alongside the disciples and they say don't look for Jesus up there, merely up there, that's fine, it's all good but look right down here on where you're standing look in our city, look, in, look on the city you're in I think of Wing a little bit like those angels, a herald of the ground, you might say. Someone who was deeply grounded in the space he was in, so grounded, he understood the value and the importance of the place in which he was from and lived, though that place rejected him. He fought for it. And so I just want to invite us in this next week or weeks to walk the ground, if you will. Walk the ground. Be grounded. Um, which might mean walking your neighborhood and pondering Wing Luke's fight for integration and remembering, I guarantee, I guarantee wherever you live, I don't care what neighborhood it is, there are people that would not be able to be your neighbors were it not for Wing Luke in our city. So you could walk the ground and be grateful as you walk. Be grateful. Um, It might be, that, you know, you walk Pike Place Market and Pioneer Square, these places that we love to go to. You know, Maj, I know you're getting ready to go back home. Maybe walk those places. And, and remember, there was somebody who fought for them. They haven't always been there. Somebody who fought for them. I hope it'll mean joining that pilgrimage with your kids as a family, or if you're not part of a biological family like that, an ex- our extended family just walking and learning more about our city, specifically our AAPI community. And just learning and being in a posture of learning. Whatever it means, though, might we as a community commit to being more present in this season with one another, with ourselves, with our neighbors, with our community, and in being more present, allowing ourselves to experience the wonder of God. I think that's what this is all about. Not not getting so drawn up in all the stuff, but allowing God just to say, hey, be right here, right now. Let me show you who I really am. I saw John for a moment. I think the kids will be coming back. Let's take a moment to pray into that, and then um, Austin will lead us out with our response song. Will you join me in praying? Well, good God, we thank you for this invitation extended to us, your people gathered much like these early disciples in a season that feels sometimes unbearable. Um, It's hard sometimes to even know if you're speaking or how you're speaking. This word wait um, it has an edge to it, God. It's hard to sit in this time, wait on you even though we know that's a a beautiful and generous invitation. So we confess that, God. It's hard to wait. It's hard to be present and wonder what, what's going on, God. It's hard to stand in a posture of witness, to endure suffering. Even though these things are all good and are beautiful, God, it's so hard. So we give you that, our weakness. We ask you, God, with your presence in our lives, um, would you give us the courage that Jesus had to walk each day, the earth? As our kids come in, walk with them through life, with our spouses and our families and our neighbors, to walk the earth that you walked. And as we do so, God, we thank you As we walk in faith, as Jesus walked in faith, you will reveal to us our next steps. And you will reveal to us who we really are. You'll remind us of that deep, that deep truth that we are beloved. So my deep call to deep, God, as we walk in faith this week, go to work, lead our family, love our neighbors, With deep call to deep, would you remind us of who we are in you? And might we live out of that? Thank you for the invitation, God, that comes from your spirit. We pray with Christ and by the spirit.